0: The UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson tells people to stay indoors again, but as the public run out of patience with his indecisiveness? South Korea is worried about the nation's low birth rate as it records more deaths than births for the first time. And in Prague, the city's tramlines are going green. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on The Late Edition here on Monocle24. So, hello and welcome to The Late Edition. I am Marcus Hippi, joined here in London by Monocle's Europe Editor-at-Large Ed Stocker and Daniel Bage, who is a producer and presenter on Monocle24. Welcome both to the program and Happy New Year. Have you had a good start for 2021, Daniel? Yes. Uh, hello, Marcus,
1: and Happy New Year to you. It's been uh, an interesting start, we can say, uh, since <laughs> since the, the new year we've... Had some uh, interesting weather, very cold weather here in the UK and and gone straight back into lockdown uh, right after the first day of returning to the office. So a swift transition. We're back where we started, Marcus. Uh,
0: But uh, all good on my end. Can't complain. Very busy. That's good to hear. What about Ed? What is the Milan atmosphere there? How much optimism about this year?
2: Yeah, I know. I feel a bit sorry for the UK. Everyone's like 2021. It's a new chapter, a new day. And Then everyone goes into lockdown uh, in the UK. Sorry, Well, in England anyway. Uh, I, I feel sorry for you guys. Um, uh, here in Milan, things are sort of continuing as usual. We have a sort of bizarre uh, traffic light system of uh, uh, a red, orange and yellow, and that dictates a sort of number of restrictions. I think talking to people over the christmas break everyone sort of lost count of how it works because each day is a different color over this uh christmas period that goes through until tomorrow which is a epith- epiphany uh it's today i i've even lost count what what color it is today and it cha- it's changing i know that it's yellow on thursday and friday i believe it may be red today orange tomorrow it's just it's very confusing so that is basically how my life is being dictated trying to work out the different color coding of the restrictions uh in milan uh ate and drank quite a lot as did probably everyone because uh well what else is there to do and uh getting back into the groove of things in in Monaco and trying to you know inform our listeners marcus
0: Exactly, and and my Christmas break w- was quite similar as well. Not much to do, a fair bit of drinking. Long walks around London, at least. And as you both already mentioned, the start of this year, 2021, hasn't been very jolly in Britain. Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced England's third lockdown last night. The rate of new infections had been increasing fast and many think that he should have acted earlier. This is what Lance Price, former Director of Communications at number 10 Downing Street, said a bit earlier today. I think Boris Johnson does simply have a problem making difficult decisions. And it is a balancing act. But leadership is about judgment. And his judgment, I'm afraid, has been seen to be lacking. And it's not just me saying that. I mean, I used to work for the opposition party for the Labour Party, but there are lots and lots of Conservative MPs, Conservative ministers, briefing journalists privately that they are absolutely dumbfounded and frustrated and infuriated by the coming and going and the inconsistent advice in recent days. Lance Price, former Director of Communications at Number 10 Downing Street there. Daniel, would you agree with what Lance says there, remembering that the situation Boris Johnson has faced is unprecedented?
1: Yeah, that's unprecedented, I think, is right, Marcus, even if we are, as I said, off the top, back in the same situation. I think many of us uh, who aren't politicians or aren't experts might have predicted that the way things are going, we would be back in this situation. But i uh, really struck by uh, what Lance is saying there about Boris Johnson's uh, perceived difficulty in making decisions or certainly slow movement in making decisions. And I have to wonder, watching him last night, how much the movements uh, and decisions of Nicola Sturgeon impacted his his movement to move towards a, na- a national lockdown. If Nicola Sturgeon hadn't moved to do the same in Scotland, would we be in the situation today or would he have waited a little bit longer? It seems, uh, you know, even 10, 11 months into this pandemic, that he only acts when he's completely backed into a corner and doesn't really think proactively uh, you know you don't uh, envy anyone in his position any global leader at this point in the last uh, in the last year but at the same time i think it's astounding that uh, he continues to drag his heels on so much and uh, and really takes the uh, it takes the opinion of his scientific advisors last really i think uh, in this situation, in the lockdown that we are in now, uh, only acting uh, because of uh, public opinion. So he, he waits to see what people are are thinking and then acts only at the last minute, which I think is just dangerous for, for any politician.
0: Ed, at some point, it did seem that some world leaders were better than others in handling the pandemic. Do you think it's possible to continue this way to say that these leaders and these countries have got it right and these ones haven't? I think it's really hard. Uh, I
2: also think talking about Boris Johnson briefly. My own personal opinion, away from my journalistic opinion, is that you know I I I'll be honest. I'm I'm not a big fan of Johnson, uh, but I do think he's had a really tough job. I I think we still don't know uh, uh, the real spread of this variant and how much that is a factor, or how much is to do with the policies and the lack of communication now we can talk about some governments that seem to have done better than others but i also think that that's tricky because we're not out of this yet and i think until the dust settles and we're through this and this is and it's all over it'll be very hard to really say that for sure even countries that seem to be living on a different universe than most of Europe right now, such as New Zealand or Australia, they still have to pay the price. It's not like people in Australia are, are basically able to travel really if they want to maintain the situation as it is. So there may be a feeling of being, in a way, sort of isolated or cut off. South Korea was a country that was long uh, held up for having done a very good job, but the deaths there have now surpassed a thousand. Now, obviously, that's nothing compared to places like where I am in Italy or the UK uh, or the US, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there has been a spike there. So you can't let your guard down. There's always a cap- a potential for things to change. And until everyone is vaccinated and the world has started to move on, then maybe then we can start to sort of look back and and really analyse in, in real depth how people have done. Ed,
0: staying with you, what does the situation look like following it from Italy? Let's remember that it was just last spring where here in Britain, many people were looking at Italy, feeling sorry for it, thinking that that country has messed up massively.
2: Well, look, Italy was out of the blocks. Uh, you could argue that, you know, it, it being sort of first country in, in Europe to, to really get hit, uh, it was way behind the curve and it suffered badly. And, you know, as I have mentioned on Monocle 24 before, uh, in fact, just this morning when I was speaking on The Globalist, it's it still. Uh, You know, had a very bad second wave. Uh, It's been sort of vying, and this is a really unenviable position to be in. It's vying for that top spot in Europe of the most deaths with the UK. Over seventy thousand people have died here, so it's not as if it's got off lightly. Um, Having said all of that, uh, the number of daily cases are a shadow of what they are in the UK. Uh, you know, it really does seem to be ground zero in the UK, not wishing to sound too alarmist. We don't know how many of those cases, or I certainly don't know how many of those cases are, are serious that we're seeing reported in the UK. But the numbers uh, are alarming. And, and and that's why Boris Johnson has uh, ha- has taken this action. Uh, whether this variant spreads to uh, other parts of Europe, we've we've had reports of it Uh, in other countries, uh, whether it becomes more widespread, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Where I am in Lombardy, it's doing okay. It it seems to have come through the worst. That may change again. Uh, the, The sort of region that is most alarming at the moment is actually east of where I am, still in northern Italy, Veneto uh, where the number of cases have been uh, going up rapidly and we'll have to see uh, what happens there. Uh, I know that the latest figures are over 3,000 cases and 175 deaths in that in that area alone. I imagine that they will go into the red zone. Uh, when that uh, becomes defined uh, later in the week or early next week, the sort of the the, the, the strictest measures. Um, And so we have that system of different regions having different colours, as I mentioned before. it's uh, it's going to be a long old winter, but, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There will be. Let's uh, let's let's be positive here at Monocle 24 and not get too bogged down in thinking that it's going to be something we can't overcome. But because we can, it's the start of the year, we need to push on.
0: Well, let's see how optimistic we can feel about another major news story from the UK. Staying with Boris Johnson, the first effects of Brexit are beginning to be felt on the ground, from expats unable to fly back from the UK to their Spanish villas, to firms refusing to deliver from the EU to Britain because of increased prices and paperwork. Daniel, you are obviously the host and producer of our business show, The Entrepreneurs. What do you think? Do we understand yet how bad Brexit will be for businesses. I think we're beginning to see the early signs of, of
1: a lot of difficulty that could come in the next few weeks and months, Marcus. We saw just before Christmas, obviously, the, the confusion with... Uh, the borders, obviously, uh, the situation around uh, the new strain of coronavirus had something to do with that. I'm talking about the the backlog that we saw at British ports. At the same time, uh, starting to notice, just anado- anecdotally, um, that a lot of retailers, especially uh, online retailers, are... Uh, suspending their service to the UK uh, if they are uh, shipping from Europe or via Europe uh, to the UK. You're noticing that a lot of people have uh, notices on their website now saying, sorry, we can't help you. We can't ship to the UK at this time. So there is a a hiccup which, which could last a little bit longer until we understand. Uh, what the uh, customs implications are for companies, and I think it's incredible that uh, after uh, months and, and years of working out what Brexit would look like, that companies have been left in the lurch, uh, trying to figure out what uh, the next little while will look like for tr- for cross-border trade. I think it'll be very interesting to see when when people start to travel. Uh, using Ed's optimism here uh, in the in the year ahead. Um, when they start to travel for work a little bit more between the uk and europe what that will look like in in moving uh, professionals and and moving people between offices perhaps uh, for professional work Uh, i read a story this week uh, interestingly about uh, a lot of uh, fashion houses thinking about uh, not having models be based in london as they perhaps have been traditionally either uh, london paris or milan they would just stick with paris and milan because it's uh, too complicated to work out visas for people to live in London and I was thinking actually earlier today Marcus um, about uh, uh, the entrepreneurs in past and uh, before this pandemic of course all the interviews used to be done in studio at Midori House and uh, a lot of the guests that I would get pitched or people that would come in their availability would be because they were in London on business either uh, from their uh, US office or from the European office and and a lot of uh, American firms particularly base themselves here, perhaps because it's a little bit easier because of the language and they use that as a foothold into the rest of Europe. I wonder what the impact will be uh, their long term if companies will decide if they want to be in the European market, if they decide to to bypass London and and just work uh, out, of, uh, out of another city like Berlin or like Paris, something like that. So that's something to keep an eye on, I think. And uh, uh, just uh, in the short term, I think it'll definitely have an impact on on purchasing, as people uh, are confused about uh, where they can buy things from and, and how those will get to them. Uh, and then we might start to see uh, more issues on store shelves here in the UK, Marcus, and things that we want to buy that uh, usually uh, in past have been so readily available.
0: Ed, could I ask you to look into your crystal ball? Years to come, give it five, six, ten years. How do you think the British public will feel about Brexit?
2: Well, that's, that's hard to answer. I think it's undeniable that there are going to be some people who voted for Brexit who won't have realised that it would have been uh, quite so difficult to do certain things. I don't think they would have realised that there may have been problems for people who weren't travelling on essential business to be allowed into a country, uh, obviously, during exceptional times of coronavirus, or those who didn't realise that, you know, as we were talking about just now, uh, getting goods, uh, ordering something from a European website would have its complications, Uh, may not have thought through the real consequences of what it would mean to those things that really people have come to take for granted for many of us uh, who were used to travelling to Europe from the UK and having the ease of that, the, the uh, you know, lack of clarity about pet passports and whether people going on holiday, and, you know, there are probably plenty of people who voted for Brexit who have a house in France, you know, ironically, and like to go on a holiday there for a couple of weeks a year, uh, who may not be able to take their little pooch. So, you know, these are small little details, small things, but those people... I don't know whether that will suddenly make them reverse their opinion and feel that it was a mistake but from my point of view as someone who uh, voted to remain and has been extremely saddened to see this sort of unshackling or 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 loosening of our of our links with Europe I it's you know it's a it's a sad day that these things are happening some people may change their mind, but I think there's probably a lot of people who voted um, who w- will be stuck in their opinions. And uh, uh, Because really, this is more than about these things. It's about this idea, and it's very hard for people to sort of really um, explain what they mean by it. But it has such resonance, this, di- this idea of sovereignty, which is perhaps why fishing rights uh even though it's such a small part of the uk economy uh, became such a big talking point between the european union and the uk because it's about this idea of sovereignty of taking back control even though people don't really know what that means. And I, I often ask people when I had these discussions about people who wanted to leave the European Union, I was like, what does that mean? How, does it, how will your life change? And they weren't always able to vocalise it, but they still feel, I imagine, and will feel that they've taken back control in some way. But to really know, I guess, you know, down the line, Marcus, will have to have a proper thorough opinion poll. Uh, and it will be really fascinating,
0: I think, to see if there are any regrets. I have to agree with that. Let's continue to South Korea, where the population has shrunk for the first time in the country's history. The number of births last year fell to an all-time low. It's caused concern among the country's politicians. Here is Stephen Borowitz, journalist and contributing writer for Nikkei Asian Review.
3: The contraction is slight, and I think, you know, more than it making any kind of real difference on the ground, it's an indication as to where things are going. And there's a A sort of psychological element to it where if this is a country, if a government is presiding over a country that is no longer growing and younger people, younger adults are choosing not to have children, then what does that mean? And what in the South Korean context, what that usually centers on is the high cost of raising and educating children alongside a lack of stable and well-paid jobs nowadays so the birth rate has been declining for some time and the government has been implementing certain measures to try to stop the decline or to even get it to increase again but none of those measures have so far been successful a priority of the moon administration the the president moon Jae-in, the priority of his government will be continuing to try to support young families and try to make things easier for people. But as of right now, I don't think they have any easy answers.
0: Now, South Korea is not alone worrying about its aging population. Ed, as a father of a newborn, I have to ask this question from you. What would you suggest as a way for South Korea to boost its birth rate? I don't
2: know what you're implying there, Marcus. What do you think? I, should, should I be suggesting that you know Marvin Gaye gets put whatever work for fly? you? <laughs> well, look, I I think well, let, let's move away from me and talk about South Korea. Um, I mean, they're doing you know, uh, in that clip we just heard about how the government is trying to do certain things to to boost um, the birth rate by offering, uh, for example. Uh, a monthly allowance to parents Um, but I think it's really interesting I'm no expert on uh, South Korea or, or the Asia region having spent most of my journalistic career in the Americas but it was interesting doing a bit of background reading uh, and just hearing some of the, the reasons or reading about some of the reasons, and it's a it's a very patriarchal society. Uh, apparently, you know, there's a, a big problem of sexism in society, and there's a growing movement of, of women rebelling against that, and one of the forms by which they rebel is the decision not to get married, not to have children. That's one of the things affecting it. It's also that there's a strong work ethic and people are choosing to to focus on their careers uh, and get ahead in uh, that area instead of perhaps taking a step back and and choosing to have a families. And uh, I think a lot of South Koreans feel that there's not enough incentives at the moment for them to have families. Interesting, the Korea Times uh, in an editorial saying that the country was not a good place to live in. So suggesting that you know that's part of the reason people uh, don't feel uh, well enough off, settled enough, sort of comfortable enough, if you will, to be able to have families. So those sound like, again, not being an expert, big societal problems that would need to be shifted. And, and, and I guess that takes more than one government and, and more than one or two years. That That's something that takes time. And I guess uh, President Moon and whoever his successor is, Uh, We'll have to perhaps think longer term about shifting some of those societal issues if they're going to boost the birth rate and, of course, uh, the economy uh, by doing that.
0: Daniel, do you agree? Do you think improving the quality of life of young people would be a key thing to do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I think it's about selling a lifestyle uh, to people that is important here. They have to be able to envision uh, what their future might look like if uh, they were uh, to add a a child to their family or or several children, of course. You know, when people are out um, chasing a career, chasing uh, the next job or wondering if they are going to be able to pay the bills and if uh, their current uh, living situation is a great place to to uh, expand their family, you know, oftentimes uh, they're thinking just uh, to the next month or the next month, right, Marcus? And uh, if you're able to sell people a long-term sort of vision, I think that makes it easier, you know. And and that can, uh, I think, for a government to uh, be reflected in, in their planning if it's... Uh, let's say, cross-platform. So if you're uh, talking about boosting the economy, boosting jobs, that's one thing. Uh, Boosting quality of living, uh, creating more parks, all of these things, I think, uh, will allow people to sort of imagine that uh, future and what it might look like. And uh, I think it has to go beyond just a, a s- small financial incentive, uh, putting a little bit more cash in people's pockets at the end of the month, but talking about uh, building better cities, talking about uh, uh, building better childcare programs, uh better schools, better education, and of course, uh, uh, providing better jobs and economic incentive. I think it's sort of a a cross-platform approach that needs to happen, and I'm actually surprised that these conversations aren't happening in more countries because I think, uh, as it sounds in South Korea, just like a, a Boris Johnson type decision, you're uh, you're faced with a, a situation when it gets uh, when it when it gets really bad, and and uh, not trying to be practical and get ahead of the problem. So, I think you might see this conversation happen in a lot more countries, Marcus, because you know uh, we hear a lot more about people that are. Uh, uh, that are deciding to have children later or, and putting that off. And then perhaps it, it never happens because they're, they're having a far, hard time uh, building their career first, right? So uh, I think this is uh, probably one we'll come back to uh, <laughs> in, in, in the uh, days and years ahead, Marcus.
0: Absolutely. Well, well Daniel and Ed, let's continue to Czech Republic to hear how Prague is inviting more greenery into the urban environment. Here is Monaco's Nick the Prague Public Transport Company has announced that they're going to be testing new, unique mixtures
2: of plants for evergreen tram tracks in the city, which, I mean, I just love. They don't only look good. I mean, having a little bit of turf in, in the middle of the street is nice to look at. Probably not ideal for kicking around a football, but nice to have in the street. There's, there's a host of other benefits too. They allow for quicker repairs of tram lines because you're not ripping up asphalt and paving, uh, which makes it considerably cheaper and a lot quieter if there are roadworks. They reduce traffic noise generally, improve air quality, act as, an, as a heat sink. Uh, and help to mitigate the urban heat island effect. Now, this isn't a particularly new idea, but I, I just wanted to flag it again because I think it is important that more can be done to invite greenery into our cities. And, and like little initiatives like this can be, can be rolled
0: out in, in cities across the globe. Such a nice example there from Brock, that was Monaco's Nick Muniz, well, Ed and Daniel, if you had the power, I wonder which places, which corners in your home cities of milan and and London would you like to make greener Daniel, I come to you first, yeah, I love this idea. I find it really interesting, and I'll actually talk about
1: my other hometown, Marcus uh, Toronto, in this instance because I was in Prague actually on a university course a a number of years ago in the dead of winter in a a big snowstorm, and uh, I remember riding uh, late at night in the bitter cold uh, these old trams that they have in Prague, which are the exact same ones they have in Toronto from the same manufacturer. They're even painted the same color red, uh, Marcus, in some instances as the uh, streetcars in Toronto. And I I love the idea of uh, creating a little bit of greenery and thinking outside the box on how to... Uh, help with things like climate change and and uh, making the city a little bit more inviting, a little bit more green. Uh, in London, you do see a lot of um, uh, green walls, uh, rooftop gardens, which is is great. It creates a, a different uh, look and feel to the city. There's a lot of that in the centre uh, of London, especially in the city. Uh, in Toronto, I think about how drab a lot of the, the public transit stations are and, and a lot of the cities. I, whenever I see... Um, uh, a pylon or traffic cone, uh, Marcus, just uh, left on the road. I, I always call that a Toronto fix. It's a, it's a, perhaps a cynical joke I I'd say about my hometown because there's always these. Um, uh, construction projects that seem to to never be fixed. They just uh, dig up the road and, you know, put some traffic cones around it and leave it for a few days or weeks and, and come back to it later. <laughs> but I think, as Nick suggests there, there's a lot of instances where uh, that wouldn't have to, have to, uh, wouldn't have to happen. And as we think about uh, what's happened to our, our vision of uh, city planning in throughout this pandemic and throughout the past year, thinking a lot more about pedestrianized zones, uh, cycling infrastructure. So uh, perhaps uh, creating those areas will, will create... Um, um, will allow for uh, less uh, construction, let's say, or less, less uh, problems in, in, uh, in, in the way our city moves and feels.
0: Well, Ed, are there many places in Milan you'd like to say, greener?
2: Well, i tell you what, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I don't know the city well enough to be able to give you a, a complete answer to that, having been here a few months and during a lockdown or semi-lockdown at that. Uh, but, uh, you know, look, there are only a couple of uh, main parks in this city um, and it could definitely do more to be green, Uh London is a a far, you know, the city where I grew up um, is far greener than here. Having said that, Uh, Giuseppe Sala, the mayor here, has ambitious plans to change the city and he has been changing the city. Uh, I know there is uh, a new park. Uh, It's not going to be ready for a few years yet. North of the city, just north of where I am in Isola, uh, that is scheduled. Lots of bicycle lanes have been installed and are being installed. So this is a city which, although it's still smoggy and has some vestiges of its industrial past, is changing. I definitely think it could be greenified. I am just down the road from the Bosque Verticale, the, the twin towers that have trees spilling out of their balconies. It, it may be good to see more sort of spilling and cascading vegetation that may catch some of the smog in a city that still has pretty bad air quality markers.
0: Looking forward to seeing that change. Ed Stocker and Daniel Beige, thank you very much for joining us in the latest edition today. Also thanks to our studio manager, Sam Impey. I am Marcus Hippi here at Midori House in London. Goodbye and thanks for being with us.